Welcome everyone to Face to Face. My name is Lauren um, and I am going to talk about Maria Callas this evening. She was born on 19, uh, in 1923 on the west side of Manhattan in the neighborhood that is now today known as Hell's Kitchen. And her parents, she was born to parents who were four months new to America and they had just emigrated from Athens. And uh, she had an older sister, Jackie, and she was born um, in Manhattan, as I said, and subsequently went to school on the west side as a young child. And uh, her parents were, uh, the mother was a homemaker, her father was a pharmacist, was a very successful pharmacist in Athens. Unfortunately, that didn't translate so well once he made the journey across the Atlantic. And they came for the opportunity of a better life, um, a shot at the American dream. Well, they didn't know that he would be so unsuccessful. And um, of course, when his businesses were failing, he, it was during the Great Depression. And um, Maria's mother uh, was a very, very dominant person, very difficult to live with. And um, if you can make the connection, if you've heard rumors of Maria's temperament later on in her career, I think she certainly inherited some of those uh, personality traits from her mother. Maria was born uh, Maria Cecilia Anna Kalogoropoulos, and um, they had to shorten the last name to Kalas to Americanize it. And uh, Maria grew up in a household that was full of tension and emotion, and her parents were always at each other's throats because her father could not provide substantially for the family and her mother, um, as a result, was extremely bitter and very, ooh, just be careful, that's okay, um, that's okay. Uh, but as a result, her mother um, was very unfeeling and very cold towards her children. Always preferred her um, elder sister, Jackie, who is beautiful, slim, and very outgoing, very friendly. Maria, on the other hand, was short, a little chubby and not so much graced with the lovely manners that her sister was. And early on, Maria was always quite a vocal child. She would sing in her cradle and never really thought much of singing until she realized that when she sang, people stopped. And when people stopped, her mother finally recognized her. And um, her mother equated Maria's future singing career, right now all imagined, as something that would bring untold fame, riches, glamour, pushed Maria to pursue singing. And Maria very quickly associated singing with love. And in exchange for her voice, she would finally gain acceptance and um, the warmth of a mother that had never really produced that for her before. And so at the age of eight, she began saving her pocket money to purchase opera librettas and um, began singing at school, uh, participated in quite a few amateur radio contests and um, won a couple. In 1937, Maria was 14 years old. And by that point, tensions between her parents had arisen to a head and her mother, this is a story that Maria later told on in life, was that they decided to go back to Athens for a visit, just her mother, her sister, and herself. 
And unfortunately, in 1937, they were kept in Athens by the outbreak of World War II. The reality, on the other hand, is a little bit more fickle, you might say, a little bit more twisted. Uh, her parents were not getting along, and her mother left her father and brought Maria and Jackie, her sister, to Athens with every intention of staying there and putting down roots. And um, in 1937, Maria was trying to f find her way as a young teenager, still incredibly chubby, was putting on more weight actually, and the outbreak of the war didn't help this with the scarcity of uh, food, supplies, clothing. Her mother made all of her clothes from scratch and um, there wasn't as much food to go around. And lots of, plenty of tales of Maria and her sister having to walk miles out into the Greek countryside, try and scrounge up whatever they could, some tomatoes, some cabbage, boil that for a while. Fortunately, Maria uh, pursued her studies for singing. She had realized that she loved it. It freed her in a way that she could express herself. And um, it was a, a mode of expression and an art form that was so glorious and unrestricting to her. And she quickly enrolled um, at the National Conservatory for Music. She had won a four-year scholarship. And um, she sang there. She was the first person every day, her teachers say this, every day to arrive to class and the last to leave. And she was always in the ear of all of her teachers trying to, trying to learn more about the composers, about the music that they had written. And one particular teacher of hers, Elvira de Hidalgo, was a Spanish opera singer, was a grand dame in Europe in her day, and took a shine to Maria understood her talent, could see that there was something very raw there. Maria's voice for such a young child was incredibly developed. She had a very strong voice that seemed to emanate straight from her core. When she sang, she sang with her heart, with her entire being. She wasn't just there on the stage to look pretty and to give a nice recital. On the contrary, she wasn't very pretty at the time. And, um, Elvira saw something in her, and as the war years progressed uh, and the Italians moved in to occupy Greece, um, things got a little bit better. Maria was able to sing for her food. Now she had literally become a cash cow for her mother, and uh, the Italian soldiers easily allowed her access to sacks of sugar, sacks of pasta, some meat, so much meat actually that um, Maria could sell the leftovers to neighbors and they also were able to make more money that way and they could get by pretty easily. Um, and uh, at the end of those four years, Maria decided once the war was over that she had had enough of Athens, she had had enough of uh, the partisan um, civil war directly following the war in Greece and uh, she decided to return to New York to visit her father, to visit her godfather, to visit the people she felt who really cared about her and the ones who would surely provide her with all the unconditional love she needed. And um, she stayed in New York for two years didn't sing publicly, didn't study, um, was just there, unhappy, unhappily eating her way through the city. 
and um, decided to go to Italy, which is the grand dame, the beckoning golden hand for all opera singers. And there she landed her first role in Verona, um, and she sung Wagner. She sung these roles that are made for very stolid, stolid women with powerful voices. And at the time, in um, the 1930s and the 1920s, leading up to Maria's Day, opera had become less of a form of drama and more of a sort of pretty recital for pretty voices. And um, dramatic movements about the stage, but not really sort of a keen interest on um, the actress, actors' parts to learn the music and to learn the core of these characters as the composers had intended for them to come across as on stage. In her studies, uh, Maria bumped into a very debonair uh, tycoon, building materials tycoon, who was twice her age, an Italian gentleman named Giovanni Battista Meneghini. And he took a shine to Maria. He, he saw something special in her. He marveled at her voice, even though she was frumpy and she, you know, didn't think quite that much of herself. She was shuffling around the streets and never wanted to draw attention to herself until she was on stage. And there, even the earliest reviewers say she was beautiful to behold. She was a spectacle. There was all the fire and all the drama or all the fragility and all the delicacy of a character according to the particular opera and particular role she was singing. Now, I want to say a few words about her voice. Her voice, as I had mentioned before, was a very large one and she had a spectacular range. She could sing anything from a low F to a high E above middle C. And I would give you a demonstration, but I think I would wreck your ears. And um, she was able to fluctuate through her registers very easily. It wasn't quite a staccato leap from bar to bar. She was always very meticulous in her studies. And she demanded, as she demanded more from herself for her art than for herself, if you get my drift. It wasn't about her ego, it was about the lost art that she was rediscovering, the opera, the roles that people hadn't sung for years because there wasn't an opera singer of her caliber who had her range. And on stage, she was, again, magnificent, but in her acting. Very soon after marrying Meneghini, this very debonair Italian man about town, quite large as well. He put her into contact with Tullio Serafin, who was um, a glorified composer of Italian opera. By this time, he was 77 years old, and it was 1949. Maria was in her early 20s, already married, and Serafin, once he heard her sing, believed in her as well, and he started to coach her in her acting, and he said to her, Whenever you feel, whenever you are on stage, try and move about as little as possible. Don't, don't go with the dramatic movements. Don't sweep about the stage with a stricken mask of tragedy on your face. Keep your movements as contained as possible, and people will notice you more. And she would respond to him and say, well, 
how, what, how do I know which gesture to use and when? And he say, listen to the music. Always listen to the music. The composer has already thought of this for you, for his singer. He has already thought of all the cues you need. When you listen to the music and you hear that fluctuation, that change in tone, this is what he has provided for you, the opera singer, the actor, to interpret his character for all of the audience to see. And she took that to heart. She pushed herself through rehearsals. She was magnificent on stage as a result. And very quickly, uh, the Italians began to see more of her from the north to the south, to the central, to the west, to the east. She visited every single town that had some sort of opera or theater. And very quickly, there was a buzz that began to spread. Um, soon after, in 1950, uh, in the age of Perón and Evita in Argentina, she sailed across the Atlantic and uh, performed in Buenos Aires at the Teatro Colón. And um, there she made less of a splash. She hadn't yet fully decided to obey her art for her sake, uh, for the audience's sake, rather, I should say. She was... Um, still unsure of herself. And I think this was because of her weight, her appearance. And if she felt that her voice was lacking something, she would push through. She would say, okay, I can feel a cough, I can feel a tickle, but I will go through the second act, I will perform. And as a result, her performances were less than stellar. And they could tell. She went on to Mexico City and she sang Aida. And the crowds loved her. It was effusive, and she was now on the lips of everyone in Mexico. She returned to Italy, and soon after, she was able to land one of the prime roles as a prima donna at La Scala, which is the grand, grand, grand opera house in Milan, in the north of Italy, right by the border of Switzerland. And at first, the uh, the director had tried to offer her a guest spot to say, oh, well, I don't have very much money, but you, you can come here and there and you can sing. I'll let you sing in a role or two. And she put her foot down with the urging of her husband, Menegidi, who had by now assumed a sort of managerial role, a little manipulative, um, but she fought to stay and she was awarded a spot there. At first, the Italian public was very suspicious of her, incredibly suspicious. They said, who is this person? Who is this who is this woman, kind of American, kind of Greek, not so pretty on the eyes, not so easy on the eyes. Very quickly, she won them over. And in 1952, when Audrey Hepburn was uh, filming Roman Holiday in Italy, it is remarked that Maria Callas had seen a, an article in a newspaper and she said, I want to look like Audrey Hepburn. I will look like Audrey Hepburn. And within two years, she had lost about 40% of her weight. She had gone from about over 215 pounds to 135 pounds, which was astonishing. She had transformed herself into a chic, glamorous woman who wore all the latest fashions from a private dressmaker in Milan and from Dior. And she ordered all of her spectacular minks and and, and took such care of her appearance and reveled in it. Finally, it was as if she had felt whole again. And finally, her body had become a 
receptacle that was worthy enough for the voice that lived within her, for the performer herself. And Maria, as it turns out, could not have could not have staged a better publicity coup. Now that she was wonderful to look at, people delighted in her. They wanted to see her picture. She became an icon in Italy. And this portrait was actually painted in 1956 when she is in her early 30s, 33 I believe. And uh, she had just uh, sung her roles for Norma and Tosca na Traviata, which she had become known for. And this is Time commissioned this portrait right before her grand debut at the Met in New York City, her homecoming, as, as it would be. And the artist, uh, Henry Corner, was Austrian. He was Viennese. And uh, he was engaged by Time magazine, which was then one of the premier uh, magazines of the world, news magazines of the world, along with Life magazine. He was engaged by them to paint portraits of celebrities for the covers. And um, so here he meets Maria in, uh, in Italy, in her home in uh, Milan. And he had approached her on the Lido, the beach in Venice, a couple of uh, weeks before and said, I'm here for time. May I take your picture? Can you pose? She said, yes, I'm, I'm a little busy. She sent a messenger to tell him that she was a little busy. He was on the beach with a pair of binoculars, and he actually rented um, a little rowboat and rowed out into the sea where she was dining with her friends, where she was apparently busy eating lobster tail with waiters and white outfits and gold buttons and braids serving her. And it's very funny because I have a letter here from him and he says, she could have posed, she, she could have posed, I was just trying to do my job. She would have been fine. And she finally meets him on a Sunday afternoon in Milano at 3.30 p.m., he says, I took another closer look at my subject. She was forbidding, like a New York career girl, black dress, dark-rimmed glasses. A very, very important man was to arrive at the same time with an important contract. I was a nuisance. I wanted to know, does she have a piano? Does she have more of the red and gold brocade, like the one in back of the glass in the vitrine? She did not want to know anything about a piano, but she said yes to my second question. Could she get the material? Does she have a dress that showed her throat and part of her shoulders? Yes, she said, I have a red scarf that you might like. Would you please put it on so I can make a drawing of you? I tacked the material into a corner of the immaculate white wall and then took a suitcase to prop up her elbow, right here. I wanted her in a scene, perhaps as Violetta in La Traviata, pleading with her lover. I had achieved my first step. And Corner, uh, as you can see, has painted in these beautiful brushstrokes. Please come closer. Um, if you look a little, you can see that it's almost as if he has taken the uh, paint on the end of his brush and just applied it very freely. He hasn't blended anything, it seems. And he achieved this method after looking at the works of Cézanne and Manet. If anyone is familiar with uh, these artists, they saw in blocks of color and they transferred that block of color in their mind's eye to the canvas. And so he has done much, of, much more of the same. And he figured out that if you applied a cool color next to a warm color, the two colors melded together in a way that brought out the vitality of the flesh 
in a way that made the color sparkle almost, as if she is right there before you, about to turn her head after listening to someone who's speaking off to her side. And I think he's quite successful. She looks beautiful. She's glamorous. She certainly has that very unique uh, face right here. And I also think that he maybe took a little bit more than just his technique into painting the picture. Certainly, the fiery colors may have been indicative of her fiery personality. And I also think he was familiar with her work and he knew that she was as, as chameleonic as possible in all of her roles. And in this way, she almost seems to blend in to the background of this painting right here. And um, after, of course, this is painted, this accompanied a cover story for Time Magazine, which was totally, totally outrageous and sort of was the article that was quoted by millions of newspapers and millions of the curious public who wanted to know more about Callas and why does she have such an incredible wardrobe? Why was she making so much money and her mother, meanwhile in Athens, is begging for $100 a month, please, just for some bread? Maria says no. She puts her foot down because her mother, of course, was lying and was making a mountain out of a molehill. And um, the American public welcomed back their, uh, their hometown girl with open arms. She was so charismatic, so glamorous in the 1950s and um, quickly began to accrue more of a, an interesting record in terms of her performances. She became known for canceling plenty and plenty of appearances when she felt the onset of a little tickle in her throat, of a little bronchitis. Unlike the time in Argentina, now she would say no. She would put her foot down. She would say, I can tell that I am not well. It's not going to be, it's not going to be the performance that people will expect of me. I want to give my best. I want to give them the best callus they've ever heard. And if she was un unable to deliver, she had no qualms in canceling. And in 1958, in Rome, by now, she is la prima donna a saluta. She is the diva, opera diva extraordinaire, the best singer and performer in the world. She is asked to open um, the uh, 1958 opera season in Rome and a glittering star-studded crowd of Italian movie stars and the like attend the opening, as well as President Gronchi of Italy. Maria is slated to perform as Norma in one of the, her most spectacular roles that she has made her own, another one of those hard operas that no one had really sung for quite a while because there was no one able to sing. Um, and. Uh, Maria sings the first act, and she is glorious. People give her curtain call after curtain call after curtain call. And then intermission. And the audience is out in the, in the lobby for 45 minutes or so before they realize that something's wrong. They should have been back in the theater by then. Maria has decided that she has felt a cold coming on. She, had, she felt a bronchial tingle in her throat at the end of the first act, and she cannot continue. She cannot continue because to perform subpar in front of the president of Italy would be a travesty. 
it is a knock against her career if she goes through this performance. <laughs> of course, that announcement that she would not continue <laughs> had the same effect on pretty much the entire audience. And she escaped after the performance. She escaped through um, a subterranean tunnel that connected. Did they put in a, a, a substitute? A no, no. They said, well, is there, she, she claims that she said, is there a substitute for me? And they said, how could we have a substitute for Kalas? She says, that's right. How can you have a substitute for La Kalas? Oh, and <laughs> for hours afterwards, the Italian men and the public were thronging outside of her window at her hotel, whistling and calling for her to come out, screaming that Rome doesn't love Maria Callas. Um, and uh, that, that hurt her. That hurt her that no one, no one understood the reasons why she canceled. In the press, it was, it was touted as, look at her ego, look how much she thinks of herself. When in reality, she really did think it's it's for the art. I am a vessel for the art. If my art isn't perfect, I cannot continue. And um, she did, she was canceled. Her, uh, her engagement at the Met in a later year was canceled by Rudolf Bing, the general manager, because he decided she was too temperamental, she was too demanding, and she was incredibly unreliable. And he couldn't deal with it anymore, and <laughs> he switched her out of there. And uh, there's, a, there's a very funny anecdote about Maria's dedication to her singing and to her acting that I'd like to tell you. Um, Tito Gobi, who is one of her wonderful colleagues, uh, was performing opposite her in Tosca, which is an opera um, very much about uh, Scarpia, this, this male character who wants to take advantage of Tosca, the fragile female, and he, he has an intent to rape her. And, during a dress rehearsal in London, she has this magnificent, magnificent uh, wig, curls cascading halfway down her back. And she's backed up against the desk of Scarpia, where, of course, there's a candelabra and many, many lighted candles. And Tito Gobi is on the opposite side of the stage, and he begins to see smoke drifting up from Maria's hair. And he thinks, oh, in three, four seconds, it would be catastrophe. So she's just standing there. He thinks, oh, she doesn't know. And so still in character, as they were performing a duet, he comes up towards her, advances as if he's going to put her hands on, his hands on her, and you know, comes up to her, tries to clasp her chin. She slips away, and he puts out the hair right before she slips through. And she sings, and when she has a breath, she looks at him and she goes, Grazie, Tito. She was waiting for him to come over and get her out of that pickle. She knew what was happening, yet she wouldn't break role even for the fact that her hair would be on fire in a couple of seconds. That was Maria. That was, that was Kalas, is what he said. And Maria referred to herself as sort of two different women residing in the same body. There was La Kalas. She referred to her on-stage persona as La Calas. And then there was Maria the woman. And in many ways, there was always a tension between these two people. And how was Maria to serve herself when La Calas had taken um, the stage for so many years? For so many years, Maria's life had been about her art. And um, she finally decided that 
enough was enough. She she found Meneghini to be manipulative and she separated from him in 1959. And shortly thereafter, she met Mr. Aristotle Onassis, who is the Greek magnet, as we all know. The man who later married uh, former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, in the midst of all of this was caught up Maria. And uh, she really, really fell in love with him as Maria the woman. It was a love that she had not experienced before. It was completely passionate. And it wasn't, for once, it wasn't about her career. And he wasn't interested in her as a singer, unlike Meneghini. He was interested in the woman as another sort of prize for his trophy case. And as a result, she was not pushed to sing. She gave fewer and fewer concerts, fewer and fewer performances. And uh, the voice is a muscle that needs to be exercised. And it wasn't being exercised. Her final performance was in 1965 of Tosca. And um, later, of course, Onassis married uh, Jack Kennedy. And she decided, what is there for me anymore? I thought that this, uh, this was my new life. Well, I must go back to singing. But at that time, there had been such a state of disrepair to her, to her voice as she was so stringent upon herself um, for so many years in creating this massive force of nature, if that's what she was. And she, she was no longer Kalas. She was no longer college. So she tried her hand at, um, at some staging. She taught master classes at Juilliard from, uh, in 1974. And every single class was filled in New York. It was packed to the gills with auditors <laughs> who ranged from uh, opera singers at the Met to Rudolf Bing, her once nemesis who canceled her contracts, to uh, Giuseppe Di Stefano, a former um, colleague of hers who, when he first sang with her, refused to sing again with Maria Kalas. says, I will never sing again with her. She is awful. She's tempestuous. And um, soon after, they, she and Di Stefano, after 1974, launched a very brief singing tour of the United States. She died in 1977 in Paris at the age of 53. Um, she became a recluse in her later years. She was very, she was a hermit. And um, she had no one really to care for her, except for her maid, her butler. And there were quite a few hangers-on who were very slimy characters. And um, she soon realized that once she was no longer singing, no one wanted to see her. And once again, realized that singing for her was equated with love. Any questions?